From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we celebrate Pride Month with some straight perspectives from writers John Bredler, Catherine Mayer, and John Peelmeyer. Drifting off, I hear my brother say, are you awake? Barely. I, I have something to tell you. But if you're too tired, shit, I think. Now, tonight of all nights, tonight he's going to tell me. I looked up to find two men, grown-ups, their legs swinging off the back of their flatbed truck. They appeared to be flirting. And then they kissed. Mom, what are they doing? Mark was tall and thin and wore her dark hair in a bun. Allison was shorter and red-haired and was the kind of woman once called handsome. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Deborah Batterman talks about writing's good days and bad ones. On a bad day, all it takes is one new rejection to make me question who would care if I never wrote another word. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Gay pride, or LGBTQ pride, takes a positive stance against discrimination and violence toward lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Pride builds community, celebrates our diverse humanity, and erodes the social stigma and shame that has defined and interrupted so many of our lives. For today's show, we've got three stories on the theme, each with a straight but not narrow perspective. First up is John Gredler, recorded on stage at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, reading My Baby. My younger brother Drew is down from Boston the day before Thanksgiving. I'm up from New York City. We'll both be spending the night at our mom's house in Larchmont, where we grew up. We meet at the Village Inn, make our way over to Cavaliers, then end up at Cartoons, drinking beers and shots of frozen Sambuca until last call. When we get home, we stumble upstairs to the attic. There are still two beds up here, one just a mattress on the floor. I'm ready to crash, a pillow never feeling so good. Drifting off, I hear my brother say, are you awake? Barely. I, I have something to tell you, but if you're too tired, shit, I think. <laughs> now, tonight of all nights, tonight he's going to tell me. What's up? He is hesitating. Then he blurts out, I, I'm gay. What took you so long? <laughs> Drew is pushing 30. We all figured he was gay for at least the last 15 years. <laughs> I just couldn't tell anyone. I wasn't sure. I mean, I was sure, but I didn't want to be. I kept hoping something would change. And I knew it was a sin. 
But you know, I don't care. I know. What about when you were up at Purchase College? Practically every other student is gay. I introduced you to some of my gay friends there. You must have come out then. I couldn't. I was afraid. It was too close to home. You were at Purchase for four years, and you never? No, I never did anything. Not until I moved to Boston. My God. I'm awake now, dumbfounded. I reach over to my jacket and pull out a joint from the top pocket. When I strike the match, I look over at True, his head propped on his elbow, worry on his face. We are quiet for a while, passing the joint back and forth. The glow from the ember lighting our faces whenever we take a hit. So how old were you when you knew? I was pretty young, maybe seven. I guess I always knew. Remember when you took mom's razor and tried to shave your legs? He snorts, yeah. I didn't know to use soap. <laughs> Cut yourself up pretty good. We're both laughing now. We better be quiet, he says. We're right above mom's room. None of us knew what to think when you did that. Sorry if I gave you a hard time about it back then. And sorry for those times I called you faggot. Didn't even know what it really meant. The joint is finished now. I'm fading, but Drew is still going. I'm afraid to tell Mom how she'll react. You know how she can be. I'm not sure I could take it if she... I'll tell her. I'll tell them all if you want me to. I know I should do it. I just don't worry about it. I'll tell Mom. I think she'll be fine. Who cares what Dad thinks? Debbie will be real upset you didn't tell her first. <laughs> Eileen won't say anything when I tell her. Then she'll start talking about something totally unrelated. <laughs> don't tell Mom until I'm back in Boston, okay? Two days later, after I drop Drew off at the Amtrak in Nourishell, I go back to talk to Mom. When I tell her, she's quiet for a while. I guess it's no surprise. He's worried how you'll take it. Well, he is what he is. I think he's afraid you won't love him anymore. She turns away looking out the window for what seems a long time. Then she looks right at me, eyes locked on mine. You tell him he has nothing to worry about. Tell him he will always be my baby. John Gredler, poet and memoirist, is a frequent contributor to Read 650. He's a recipient of the Catherine Gerfine Fellowship from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, and his work has been published in Atticus Review, Narratively, The Sun Magazine, and others. John and his family live in Tuckahoe, New York. Catherine Mayer, known as Kathy and Kate, is a potty mouth writer, humorist, and activist, writing out loud with humor and angst about social issues, parenting, midlife, and gun violence prevention. 
She's a reluctant inductee into AARP, a mom of four mostly grown and flown kids, and an aspiring writer with rejections to prove it. Here's Kate, recorded on stage at City Winery in New York, reading Two Guys in the Back of a Truck. As a kid in the 1970s, I spent weekends wandering up and down the dirty aisles of flea markets, antique shows, and auction halls that often smelled like funnel cake, barn animals, and old lady purses. Instead of soccer and softball or dance, my childhood was spent picking through the attics and boxes and basements and trunks of cars looking for photography, tin toys, local memorabilia, rag dolls, anything quirky. It was had to be unique and clever, saleable. I was to buy low and sell high. My mom and dad, they were school teachers and they supplemented their salaries by the antique business. So I was inducted at an early age into the weird, wonderful world of wickedly smart people, no bads, and long before the alphabet soup even existed, the LGBTQ community that flocked to the antique business. I had a good eye. My mom would give me a fistful of 20s, her tax ID number, and send me on my way. I would pick the fields of Stormville or Brimfield or the street fairs in New York. Dealers would eyeball this dirty little kid dressed like she just rolled out of the back of a van, because often that's what I did. Antique dealers slept in their cars to get an early start on the selling and, more importantly, the buying. Can I help you, little girl? Just looking, I'd say. I was always mistaken for a pain-in-the-ass kid, the you-break-it-you-bought-it type, or worse, a shoplifter. But all that would change when I would unroll a fistful of money and ask, hey, what's your dealer price on this? How much for cash? <laughs> Once I was picking through Brimfield with my mom, and it was late in the day. The customers were gone, so now it's just the dealer shopping. And the dealers were relaxing. They were cooking a little hibachis, drinking bottles of sweaty beer. While thumbing through a box of tintypes, I was looking for anything out of the norm. Dead people, Civil War soldiers, circus freaks, animals. I looked up to find two men, grown-ups, their legs swinging off the back of their flatbed truck. They were laughing. Their legs were entangled with each other, leaning into each other. One had a guitar, the other a beer. They appeared to be flirting. And then they kissed on the lips, long and hard, and their eyes were closed and mine were wide open. <laughs> Mom, what are they doing, I gawked. She's like, oh, them, they're kissing. And she barely glanced up and then back at the 19th century croc she was looking at that had two folksy birds intricately painted in a deep vibrant blue. Boys kissing? I had never seen that on Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> or on happy days, or on the odd couple. Stop staring, Kathy, it's none of your business. But, 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 but nothing. You listen to me, she said. What's your problem? Here's the deal. Sometimes men love women, and sometimes women love men. And sometimes men love men and women love women, maybe both, maybe neither. Who cares? What does it really matter to you? How is it your business? I, 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 I don't. My mom had made it a no big deal, and therefore it remained no big deal. She turned around and walked away, onto the next booth, the, un, the next unexpected discovery. But I stayed, because I saw something I hadn't before. Excuse me, sir, how much? I asked, and the dude swung off the back of the truck and came over and looked at the large photo I held out. 
It was a lithograph of an Indian elephant and some sort of prince or a princess, I couldn't tell which, who was standing awkwardly next to the elephant, staring straight into the camera, not daring to blink. Beautiful, stoic, but clearly uncomfortable at the photographer's spotlight shining on him or her. The regal costume elephant was draped in fabric and jewels, ever the docile, confident subject. This, honey, oh, put this down. You better not touch it. It's very expensive, 150 bucks. You go find your mom, he said, and he took it from me, putting high out of reach. His condescending smile dismissed a little girl out of place in a field full of dusty memories, mostly unappreciated, some undiscovered, yet valuable to someone somewhere. He turned around and walked away. Is that your best? I shouted after him. Is there any wiggle room at all? How about a hundred bucks cash right here? Do we have a deal? And I started pulling the crumpled cash, 20s from my pockets of my jeans. He turned and smiled and walked back and we got down to business. <laughs> Catherine Mayer is occasionally funny on Instagram and Twitter at Kathy Kate Mayer and plays well with others on Facebook. Her blog is a National Society of Newspaper Columnist Award winner, and she's received the Connecticut Press Club Award for Best Personal Blog in Connecticut. You can learn and read a great deal more at KatherineMayer.com. John Peelmeyer began his career with the play and movie Agnes of God. Since then, he's had three more plays mounted on Broadway and over 25 film, television movies, and miniseries produced. This is writer John Peelmeyer, recorded at City Winery in New York City, reading his essay, Girlfriends. Their names were Mart and Allison, and they came to visit us on occasion when I was a boy, and once or twice we went to visit them. They were school teachers and lived together on the top floor of an old brick house. Mart was tall and thin and wore her dark hair in a bun. Allison was shorter and red-haired and was the kind of woman once called handsome. Her full name was Allison Douglas, which translated in my five-year-old mind as Alice and Douglas. But my mother referred to them as Mart and Allison, which sounded to me like Martin Allison. It was all so confusing, but oddly appropriate. Their names linked as though they were one person, half female, half male, which strikes me even today as not incorrect. Most of my mother's girlfriends were of the same physical mold. They were either thin and wiry or square and muscular. And all of them were unmarried, but for one who had several children and a mustache. <laughs> Most were gym teachers. And my mother would describe them as outdoorsy. <laughs> they first met when she worked as a secretary for the Girl Scouts. They were leaders and administrators, and they were all very fond of her. Whenever they visited, she welcomed them with a kindness shadowed by a certain reluctance I never completely understood. I liked them. They were fun to be around, and they were comfortable in their bodies in ways that other women weren't. They were independent, and they seemed happy. My mother and her girlfriends spent the summers of the 1930s at a Girl Scout camp near their hometown. 
All were camp counselors, and they bonded, I imagine, sitting around a campfire late at night after their young chargers were in bed, talking of the girls and their teenage problems, and celebrating their own love of being in the great outdoors, away from civilization and the tyranny of men. My mother's boss, a woman named Billy, introduced my mother to my father, and my mother always spoke of Billy with great affection, still remembering the sorrow she suffered when Billy moved to another city and another Girl Scout office. She and Billy exchanged Christmas cards every year, and when I was grown, I arranged for my mother and Billy to reconnect. I met Billy for the first time then. She was square and muscular and very outdoorsy. <laughs> my mother was happy to see her, but the meeting was a little awkward. They didn't have a lot to say to each other, and they never saw one another again. Our next-door neighbor, Georgetta, once referred to one of my mother's girlfriends as a lesbian. Mother was incensed. It was as if Georgetta had accused the woman in the paranoia of the 1950s of being a Russian spy. Of course, in the spirit of that metaphor, all of my mother's girlfriends spoke with thick Russian accents. Still, my mother refused to recognize their foreign allegiance. Her Catholicism and the tenor of the times denied these women approval, but when her closest friend, a solid woman named Marion, who had a contagious laugh and eyes that squinted with warmth, when Marion moved in with another woman, my mother refused to judge her. She prayed for her, I'm certain, but she always welcomed Marion gladly when her friend came to visit. The happiest six months of my mother's life was when she served as a substitute girls' gym teacher at my high school. The girls confided in her, and they loved her. Years later, when my wife and I celebrated our 10th anniversary with a party and a dance, my mother spent the evening cutting a rug with a lesbian friend of ours. Your mother's a terrific dancer, our friend told us later. She would have made a great lesbian. <laughs> John Peelmeyer's stage adaptation of The Exorcist premiered in London and is bound for New York. Scribner published his first novel, Hook's Tale, and he's recently adapted it as a two-person play. His projects have won a Gemini Award and been nominated for the Emmy Award and the Golden Globe. If you've already written a review of our show on Apple Podcasts, I thank you. If you haven't, now's a great time to do so. It really helps us, and it helps new listeners find the show. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati Mayer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler Kenny. Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show is produced with help from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after this very short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. Enroll in a non-credit workshop where everyone, 
from the novice to seasoned writers, from preteens to retirees, can find a class to explore their talents and bring their inner writer to life. The Writing Institute helps writers in every genre to grow, welcoming them into a supportive community of better thinkers, better listeners, and better writers. Learn more. Visit sarahlawrence.edu slash writinginstitute. Deborah Batterman is the author of the novel Just Like February, a finalist in the Next Generation Indie Book Awards and American Fiction Awards. And, like all writers, she often wonders just why she does what she does. Writers are nothing if not gamblers. Hours and hours of hard work, draft after endless draft, characters who live inside our heads until one day we say out in the hope that someone, maybe lots of people, will take a chance on what we're offering. On a good day, a character in a piece of fiction I'm working on tells me she's always been a little in love with Bob Seeger, and my only question is, how did I not know this before? That section I was grappling with finds its tone, its missing sentences, and I'm on fire. On a bad day, All it takes is one new rejection to make me question who would care if I never wrote another word. I let out a sigh. Words roll out. Some hesitancy in them. I would. I can pull my hair out one strand at a time in frustration, take needed breaks, but in a word or two or three, I cannot not write. It's the double negative that's so affirmative. Even through the doubt and despair, what keeps me writing is the puzzle of it all. Teasing images into words, words into sentences, paragraphs, stories. The other night I had a dream in which I was on stage singing. My voice surprised me. I took it as a metaphor, a reminder of that more elusive, but oh so essential ingredient to good writing. Today I reread an essay by Joan Didion, Why I Write. Setting words on paper, she says, is the tactic of a secret bully, an invasion, an imposition of the writer's sensibility on the reader's most private space. It's a large leap of faith and more from my private writer's space, where all the magic happens, to my imagined reader's private space. Bully or not, if something I've written has resonance, then maybe more than one person might care if I never wrote another word. A story from Deborah Batterman's collection, Shoes, Hair, Nails, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and her award-winning stories and essays have appeared in anthologies as well as print and online literary journals. A native New Yorker, she's worked over the years as a writer, editor, and teaching artist, and she lives in New York's Westchester County. Between the Lines is a weekly feature where we encourage writers of all genres to share their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you can also view open submission calls for our upcoming shows. Please check it out because we're always interested in new voices and we'd really love to hear from you. If you liked today's episode, we have two requests. Please tell one friend about Read 650 and please follow the podcast so you receive our new episodes every writer Wednesday. 
That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers John Gredler, Catherine Mayer, John Peelmeyer, and Deborah Batterman. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.